This is the Fatherhood Unlocked podcast, and my name is Dan Doty. I'm a father of three, an outdoorsman, and a meditator, and supporting dads to be the best version of themselves is my highest calling. Fatherhood is the biggest rite of passage in a man's life. It's our biggest opportunity to grow up, to wake up, and to learn who we actually are. I believe that a father's love is the biggest missing vitamin on the planet. This podcast is intended to be a lightning rod to call men to action, to create community, and to set a new tone and standard for what fatherhood means. Welcome to Fatherhood Unlocked. Nathan Riley is a father of two. He's a board-certified OBGYN. And he left the medical industrial complex due to his disillusionment with the standard of care within the conventional maternity care model. He is the host of the Holistic OBGYN podcast. And he says, we don't need to burn down the medical industrial complex to change women's health care. We merely need a life raft to demonstrate how truly holistic care is better than pharmaceuticals and surgery. I had a really good time with this conversation. And Nathan brings a very clear speaking sort of rebel attitude toward supporting our mothers and our kids and ourselves. He has some perspectives on a wide range of things that I found really fascinating. And one of them amongst a bunch is the potential use for psychedelics in and around the birth experience. I'm grateful to Nathan to make the time to be on the show and excited to share his message with you all. Before we get to the conversation with Nathan, I'm excited to share that tonight, as I record this, is the first night of the first cohort of the Fatherhood Unlocked Facilitator Training. I'm beginning, we're starting, we're building a loving army of dads to support other dads to step up for our kids and step up for our communities, look inside, look outside, do all the things that we can and pay attention to what our worlds, our partners, our kids what everything's asking of us, and doing what we can to support each other's step into it. My bigger announcement today is that we are now opening enrollment for Father's Fire. Father's Fire is the online men's group for dads. We meet every Thursday night. Our work is split down the middle. Half of it is internal self-reflection, digging deeper, using each other in the best basic men's group protocols to help each other dig deep inside. And then once we've done that, the other half is we look out in our lives and really hone in on the action we need to take, the accountability we need for ourselves. And we take this as a holistic sort of team approach to just being who we are as much as possible, being there for our kids and taking the steps we need and want. It's fun. It's growing. I'm so excited. I'm so proud. Enrollment is now open on an ongoing basis. We're going to take applications as we go. And every time we have five or six guys ready to go for a small group, we will trigger a professional facilitator step in. We will add you into the mix and the community will just grow. You can stay as long as you want or as short as you want. Obviously, we want you to stay for a while, but come check it out. Check it out at dandoty.com. And look under the Fatherhood tab, you'll see Father's Fire. We also have a cohort of Fatherhood Ready coming up in a month in October. Fatherhood Ready is an eight-week deep dive internal and external boot camp for expecting dads. 
This is half deep men's work and half birth and parenting education. We bring in educators and partners from all over the spectrum to talk about pregnancy and birth and postpartum and nutrition and finances and parenting and all of the things that we need to get a heads up on as we're about to become dads. And at the same time, we're together as a community going through the rite of passage of fatherhood that changes our identity, changes what we know, changes our true understanding of the universe, and we're doing that together. We're offering that part of it as something that I don't know where else is happening. I don't know where that second part is happening. And so we're doing our best to really give dads a leg up and a good start, not only for their sake, but for their kids and their partner and everyone around them. Fatherhood Ready, check it out at dandody.com. All right, here's the conversation with the holistic OBGYN, Nathan Riley. All right, Nathan, uh, the, the first question I have to ask you is tell me about what maybe is the most exciting piece of art I've seen in a long time right over your left shoulder. I see I see a uterus and fallopian tubes flicking me off. Tell, that's rad. <laughs> tell, I'm so glad you didn't say, is that a vulva behind you? Because there's no vulva there. There's, there's a uterus <laughs> with tubes and a middle finger. You got it exactly right. There is a little hint of vagina here below the cervix, but people in my community still struggle with the difference between the basics of female anatomy. Health coaches galore are like, they say the word vagina and they don't even think they know what a vagina is. So I do quite a bit of educating and that is my little teaching tool back there. And it, it does have a little advocacy in it as well. <laughs> well, okay, perfect. So uh, we'll get into all kinds of things here, but I can't not take the bait. Would you give us, all right, would you, first of all, my wife has has made it her mission to make sure that I'm quite educated on, on female anatomy. I don't uh, doubt it. <laughs> and I have a and I have a daughter now as well, so it's been extra extra important. But fuck it, give us give us a give us the quick. Maybe it doesn't do it on or do it quick, but get, get, use that and give us a little for all the fathers and expecting fathers out there. Sure, imp, important little thing here. Teach yeah, us. a little a little bit of Californication is going to come out here in here as well. So if your female partner, whether you're a male or female, you've got a woman in front of you, they're on the bed, you guys are about to have passions, make passions. Legs are open. You see the beautiful Georgia O'Keeffe flower in front of you. What you're seeing is the vulva. There are lips on the outside, lips on the inside. That's the labia majora and minora respectively. And then there's an opening which is where your penis will eventually end up, perhaps if you really play your cards right, um, with consent and permission, of course, every step of the way. Just below that opening is the, an area of skin called the perineum, and below that is the is the anus, the proverbial asshole. So if you go then back up to the opening of the vagina, that's the introitus. Again, that's this sort of compartment whereby if you were to go in and able be able to look, you would find a cervix. We'll get to that in a second. Above the uh, the opening of the vagina, you're going to find a little opening, which is where the pee comes from. That's the urethra, the periurethral folds you can see there. And then above that, you'll see a tiny little man in a boat. That's where Californication comes in. So you've got this <laughs> little, little bit of skin, and then there's this little guy sticking out there. That's the clitoris. That's the primary center of of uh, uh, let's just say sexual gratification for women, but all of that that I've described 
is erogenous, meaning all of them, those parts have nerve endings, including inside the vagina, including the cervix, which again, we'll get to. And then above that little man in the boat, that little fold up there is called the clitoris or the uh, clitoral hood. And above that is where you find most of the pubic hair. That's the pubic mons. And if you were to press deep to that, you'd actually hit a full bladder if they didn't empty their bladder. So that's the outside stuff. Now we've talked about, that's the vulva. Everything you see is the vulva. Inside the internal genitalia include this compartment, which is really a sleeve of skin that accommodates the penis. And if you were to go all the way to the end of that track, assuming that they still have their uterus, including the cervix, you'll see a little donut shaped thing, which when you're ovulating, when a woman is ovulating, it'll be aimed right towards the opening of the vagina and the opening of the cervix will be a little bit open. There may be a little bit of, of kind of like discharge kind of, uh, you know, mucus coming from there. That tells you that it's time to get some sperm in there because ovulation may be happening in the near future. If you were able to go into the cervix, into the uterine cavity, here's the vagina. Mm-hmm. And then here's the cervix. That would look like a donut on a speculum exam. And then inside here, This whole thing is the uterus. These walls of the uterus are thick muscle. And there's a lining there that sheds once a month. If a person is ovulating and menstruating, it'll shed out and come out of the vagina. So this is where the baby grows, guys, right in here. This is not a vulva. This is a uterus. And the reason a baby got in there is because sperm were introduced whenever the cervix, the fluid was just right. Sperm was able to manage you know, mitigate the channels to get up in there. They go into the fallopian tube, which is on either side, and it will meet an egg halfway. What isn't shown here is the ovaries, which actually sit adjacent to the side of the uterus here. The the fallopian tubes will pick up an egg and pass it down the tube where it meets a sperm, creating an embryo, which implants in the uterus. And nine and a half months later, pow, you're a dad. Pow. That was utterly masterful. Thank, thank you for that. Thank there are you for few that. things in the world that I can say I'm a master in. I definitely know my my female anatomy for sure. <laughs> well, what a what a perfect way to intro, right? So so t- tell us in by way of introduction, tell us uh, what a strapping tattooed, you know, man of 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 your stature. Tell us a bit of the journey of, first of all, the mastery, where did it come from? Why is it so easy to talk? Like, just give us a, give us a snapshot of, sure. of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, most of us, we grow up in a an environment where we don't learn a lot about anatomy and sexuality. It's all, you know, very kind of through the lens of Christianity has made us kind of ashamed of our bodies, ashamed of, of menstruation. You know, it's this embarrassing thing in our culture. And perhaps the first sign that something about this birth thing was really wild was that video that we all saw in like sixth or seventh grade where a baby is emerging and you see this head come out of a vagina like real time on a giant projector and they do that and they could use this as a really beautiful educational process for us but instead they say if you have sex if an erect penis goes in there in the vagina then this is what's going to happen and it's so shocking because it's the first time many of us have seen it that we're like, Oh my God, I don't want that. Especially the women are like, what the nice curse? What the fuck is happening here? You know? So, um, so anyways, uh, that was my introduction. Like everybody else, I didn't have sex until I was 17 or 18 with my high school sweetheart. We waited like, I mean, not even intentionally. I think we were both just nervous around being vulnerable with one another and naked in front of one another. And, um, I'm still married to her, still married to my high school sweetheart. And 
Um, it wasn't, I was not interested at all in gynecology or birth, had no concept of that. I was actually interested in public health, global health, and found myself applying for med schools, getting doing well enough on the test to get in there, and then spending the next 10 to 14 years studying human anatomy and physiology and pathology, um, during which you have to pick a specialty. So when I was in med school, we all, part of the deal is you have to see a birth in person. Like that's a part of your OBGYN rotation. And I saw that and I wasn't shocked this time. I was actually mystified. Yeah. It was like, whoa, there is no answer to this test question. I know I use that that aphorism a little bit in, in my podcast interviews, but I can't express to you just how powerful it was to be there with a person giving birth. I was right there seeing it, smelling everything, like almost tasting the energy in the air. I mean, there's like so much, it's palpable what's happening there. And then you go into general surgery and then you go into pediatrics and I just wasn't ever mystified again. So Fast forward, then you have to apply through this weird uh, matching process to get into residency. I chose OBGYN as my my specialty. Mm -hmm. And then later, I actually did some additional work in hospice and palliative care in my fellowship at UC San Diego. But in residency in LA, I was very, very quickly disillusioned because it was being demystified. I was being told yeah. you have to intervene in certain ways. And there's procedures and protocols you have to follow as if it was something I could control. And then what I found was, despite how tired I was and despite the long hours and the little sleep and all of this stuff, I wasn't seeing anybody getting better. It was like, I'm throwing my entire life force at this and I'm having so many people have complications and all of that. And that actually forced me to consider, I don't know if I can wake up at three in the morning continuing to do vaginal checks and all this stuff that so many women and men have experienced in the hospital. What if I don't do that stuff at all? And it turns out that nothing bad happened. In fact, these women and men who were coming into the hospital to care for me, the labor and delivery nurses, even some of my colleagues were stoked that I wasn't getting up and waking everybody up in the middle of the night to do these unnecessary things. And I didn't know they weren't they, they were unnecessary at the time. I was merely trying to survive. Like, I don't want to wake up at 3am. I don't see a good reason to put my hand in a place and wake her up and do this. It's uncomfortable. It can be very painful. And sometimes it leads to other interventions that cause catastrophe. So my C-section rate plummeted and my my patient satisfaction, if you want to call it, it skyrocketed. All the, everybody was happier with me and I had great outcomes. So it was like, there's something to this. So then the mystification started happening again. And I realized, man, what would this be like if we weren't in a room with lights and beeping and constantly sharp things coming at you? And I started attending home births with a local doctor named Stu Fishbein, who's an incredible mentor of mine. And I was like, this is it. This is the primal thing that I was so drawn to in med school. And then it was kind of like the rest is history, as they say. I pursued home birth and started working on upstream causes of these pregnancy complications and how to prevent them in the first place so that people don't even need me. It's a terrible business model, but yeah. I didn't want people to need me. I wanted people to do this on their own. And so that's that's who I am now. I get to have tattoos and wear, you know, don't even wear shirts most of the day. I just do my work. <laughs> that is fascinating and fucking beautiful. The so to to feed it back, just to it, you went the you didn't know you were going to go this direction specifically. You got into the medical system. You got into your training. You yeah, were, you, you had what what sounds like a, a mystic or almost spiritual experience, or or just that the mystery. How however you want to put that, and then 
in following that you you just uh, found practical what seems like what I interpreted practical ways to do the job better, less intrusive Absolutely. results got better, and somehow. I mean, and this, I'm taking liberties here, but maybe somehow ran into some of the more feminine ancient wisdom of midwifery or things or, or and I, I'm curious, we can, we can't, we can or, or don't need to open up some of those cans along here. But um, first of all, I would want to, I just want you to know. So I have three children, seven, four and 18 months. Um, Congratulations. Oh, 18 months, man, you're fresh. Yeah, yeah, we're in it. Wilderness Rose <laughs> is her name. She is a fucking chaotic wow. Uh, beauty. Wow, is what she wow. Is. But chaotic we, beauty. I love that chaotic, chaotic beauty is right. She <laughs> she has the ability to upend everything. Um, really insight. Yeah, yeah. Human tornado. <laughs> but all three were planned home births. Uh, our first Duke, we we transferred to hospital, had some interventions and, uh, and went that way. And then the, and then the second two were, were home births. And I guess I just, what I want to point to first is um, I, if, if I would have been like in your cohort or group or class and had gone to medical school, I could see myself having followed a, a similar path. There is after a lifetime yeah. of uh, exploring you know, ecstatic experience and spiritual experience and meditation, all the things, uh, there literally is nothing that I, uh, can point to that's bingo. Right. I, I bingo. like, I, lo- I lost my words, right. It's just, holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. If you want to like, you could go and do 30 grams of mushrooms out in the desert or something. That's, that's a great experience. I've been there, not 30 grams. I mean, <laughs> I've got, I know, I know one person who's done 30 grams of mushrooms and he ended up with a very dark night of the soul for about six months. It was terrible, but uh, you know, you can take these journeys, you can, you can invest in Qigong and meditation and, and reach altered states and all of that. There is nothing more psychedelic, nothing more masculine or, or let's say challenging to the masculine than sitting and bearing witness to the birth of your own child. It is a leveling up initiation all, all in itself. And that's, where I'm finding myself doing the majority of counseling is people, you know, approach this without any great guides or modeling. And fortunately, there are people like you out there that are actually trying to help guys apply masculinity, not just, not just, Hey, let's be vulnerable. That's like level one. What about how do you apply? How do you stand in your masculine whenever things seem like the the roof is just about to blow off? You know what I mean? And that's what yeah. childbirth is. It's the ultimate experience uh, for a man. And especially as a male gynecologist, OBGYN, uh, it's hard every single time because I want to fix the problem, but there's no problem to fix. It's actually my job just to hold the container so the roaring raft, you know, rapids of the river can just do their thing. And so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I, you, you, you hit, you hit me with something there with the spiritual experience. <laughs> well, I'm so glad, I'm so glad to have you on the show, man. Really. It really, it really is an honor to, to, to connect and have this chat. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that spiritual thing, but I want to ask you a question that I've been asking a lot of people and I'm, and I'm, yeah. and it's on the cultural or societal and almost historic level here. Right. And I'm curious your take, you know, I yeah. feel that, you know, if we look in the near the near history of, of the Western world, right. Uh, I'm American. I was, this is, this is what I know. Right. Um, one of my mentors is an incredible writer named Jed diamond. He's, he's published like 15 books on men, right. In the eighties and nineties and two thousands. And, uh, his big one was called male menopause. It's like a big international vessel. Anyway, the male reason menopause. I bring, huh. haven't even <laughs> read that. One. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
the reason I bring him up is he, when he introduces himself around the topic of fatherhood, I, I forget the exact year. And I'm sorry, Jed, if I butcher this, but either the 50s or 60s, maybe the 70s, but so, somewhere in that 15 year period, he had his first son. And um, he was literally asked or told to not be in the in the birthing room, right mm. at the hospital, and he he broke the rules, and he he basically he had this huge call inside of him, be like, no, I'm gonna fucking be there, I'm gonna be there for yeah. the birth of my son, and you know, just using that as like a, a a waypoint along the way, but culturally speaking, right, like men. It, like this was not the the land like dads weren't invited in this this is this is this is not and i'm not sure how long the historical period is and that's what i'm curious on your take but my sense you know we'll talk more about the rite of passage and just the the huge growth that that comes from being there but on a societal level man it's a big fucking deal yeah in my opinion that now as dads, the expectations are completely different, right? To mm. be the primary birth partner for the birth of my children has to be the most changing and moving thing in my life. Right. And so anyway, just threw a lot of shit at you. Yeah. Well, how do you see all that? How do you see this on a societal and cultural level first? Uh, you know, it's a really good question. The, the answer that I, the answer that comes to mind first is I'm not so certain that there is an there is an expectation, but it's it's almost as if if you don't meet the bare minimum requirements, then somebody out there is going to say that you you did a shitty job, right? So a lot of guys I think are are actually looking for more than being expected to do the bare minimum, sure. and it's almost like an infantilizing process in the hospital where people are like, okay, come here, dad, come here, do this and this. There's a lot of big, strong, tough, powerful men, experienced, accomplished men who want to, to to level up as men and they want to um, embrace the opportunity of childbirth. But we don't have a lot of great modeling for that because the generation preceding ours and their you know father's generation, they they didn't really talk like this, you know and, and so you know that. but if we were to go back in time, let's go back to like the earliest written human history in ancient Sumer, women healers were reign supreme. And it was part of the, the part of the thing was that we had a polytheistic society in which these female goddesses were inextricably linked with nature, fertility, childbirth, um, you know, you know, what have you, the healing was still a part of a, a woman's kind of brand, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. And they were a lot less they were a lot, a lot less like fired up about how you classify something as male or female. Hmm. You know, it was, there was, there was some androgynous or ambiguously kind of sexualized deities, for example. But then if you fast forward through time, as we started to see the advent of modern medicine, so to speak, hmm. what really happened was a resting of power by the church and state. It's the old, you know, age old story over all purviews of healing the one that remained the sort of bastion of hope for women healers was childbirth. So midwifery in and of itself, people say, I'm, I'm more like a midwife. And that may be true, but I would never call myself a midwife because that would be an insult to the lineage of women caring for women over the past several millennia, at least as far back as we know in, in written human history. And then as we saw the advent of what you know you could call Rockefeller medicine, which is really the, the modern medical establishment it was based on German style medical education. And then large, large philanthropic dollars from the Carnegie's and Rockefeller were invested into a medical system that just quite frankly, 
marketed themselves as the top, you know, head honcho. And now we're left in a space where we have mostly male physicians, although that is starting to balance out. Yeah. But we have a lack of femininity, a lack of the appreciation for what feminine forces can do um, in nature as well as in ourselves, because of course we are inextricably linked with nature. So the reason I'm saying all of this is that for years and years and years, the reason that men couldn't get in the door is that it wasn't seen as a, as a space for men. Yeah. Men were out supposed to be doing the hunting and the gathering and all this other stuff. Women were going to care for women. And then there was like group groups of people that were collectively nursing children. They were, they were leaning on one another in such a way that it just didn't become a part of our sort of modern culture for men to be a part of the child raising process. Having said that, now that we are in a space where women are climbing the corporate ladder and all of this, there is this big question as to what is a man's role. But I think that that kind of misses the point. I actually don't think this is a matter of, of delegating responsibilities. It's you're only going to go through the birth of your third child one time. Do you want to be a part of that? And most men are saying, fuck, yeah, I do. Yeah. And then they're being infantilized by like, oh, you want to cut the cord and all this? Most men actually want to be a part of it. They want to be present. They want to be aware. They want to feel it. And that is the true sign of a, uh, for me, that's a true man who can sit there and bear witness to somebody going through the transformation of their life. Their old self is dying. Their new self is being reborn. A child is emerging earthside. If that's not like, uh, like a route for spiritual growth, personal growth, and I don't know what is, but these, there's fear, very few rites of passage. The one for us that we can all count on if we want to have children is that bearing witness to somebody going through the pain, the exaltation, sometimes the yeah. ecstasy of childbirth without coming in to solve a problem. That is a tremendous spiritual exercise. And a lot of men, I think, are, 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 are heeding the call. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but I I think it's a deeper question than just, you know, what's a man's job? You know, people ask me that and I'm like, I, we're missing the point. There's not a problem here. There's not a job for you. There's a right. an, an opportunity to hold space. And that is tremendously hard for many of us. Yeah, well said, man. I, you know, how I sort of view it is a, a wild a wild opportunity for the individual man for the dad in in question mm -hmm. but i also i think societally on on a on a holistic level here i i feel like what has been occurring what is occurring now as as men are um you know stepping up and stepping in and being a part of it i i just think that that is going to be some of the deepest uh, driving force of, uh, of cultural change of collective change. Like it has to, like, I mean, that's, you know, that's yeah, why I started right, this podcast. Right. It's just like this fucking crazy thing is happening individually <laughs> and collectively. We're not really talking about it that much. And it is, um, like you said, it's, it is central. It becomes as central to, to a father's life as usually more. I mean, actually, I would say statistically, I ask this of of all dads that I talk to, you know, what's the most important thing in life? Is father? Is are your kids? And and you know, the answer is always, of course, of course, yeah. it is. Yeah, and we're yeah. not talking about it that much yet, right? Or we're starting to maybe. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, let's let's jump back a little bit. How about your? Tell us about your journey becoming a dad. Like, and I know this is your job. I know this is your life. Uh, tell us how it was for you as as you experienced it. Interrupting this podcast just for a minute to tell you a little bit more about Father's Fire. Father's Fire is an online men's group. We meet every week 
Right now it's on Thursdays. Everyone in the program has a small group of a total of six guys and one trained facilitator for that group. So you get to experience a very deep, intimate, and connected men's group experience. And on top of that, you get the wisdom of a wider community of dads who are going through this just like you are. Many of them have gone through parts you haven't. Sometimes you're ahead in other ways. And the benefit here is both the deeper wisdom of learning from each other, but also the practical shit that we all need help with as well. It's really fun. It's really wild. It's working well. You're invited. Go to dandody.com, look under the fatherhood tab, and you'll find Father's Fire. Yeah, that's a really good question because for me, it was very much a uh, a reckoning. You know, when you invest in the medical system, this also is something I've studied at length historically. When you're studying medicine, you want to be a doctor, right? You're a smart kid. Maybe you have enough charm to, you know, work your way through the application process and the interviews and all of that. You probably have some resources to put towards what, you know, equates to about a half a million dollars in debt from my medical training. If you're going to go that distance, you become so, so determined to fit into that model. They're not really training critical thinkers. Doctors say, well, you know, we're trained as critical thinkers. That's why I'm a scientist. No, we're not. We're actually rewarded for answering correctly on a test based on somebody else's presumption of what is right or wrong about the world. That's what testing is. Now, we're going to standardize things. We're going to get you to know all the things that we think are relevant on physiology and, and anatomy and pathology, right? The issue for that for me was that when you actually get to the place after all of that school, you get to the place where you have to sit and hold space for your own wife, who you know better than anybody. And you have all of this experience. I've done like 500 C-sections. I've done thousands of births. I've taken care of 10,000 women, right? Like whatever. You don't, people give those numbers. They don't really know. It's because you just lose track over time. Um, Despite all of that experience, nothing had me ready for the birth of our baby. So, so like what happened there? Well, the big, the big problem is that, you know, us guys who are, you know, conscious men trying to show up in in the right ways in our relationship, we don't see our, our wives as objects. They're, they're not a car and everything that a doctor would tell me about my wife has nothing to do with how I feel about her. So there's nothing measurable, you know, in my relationship. You know, how much do you love your wife? 10, 20, like out of what? What's the scale? Like compared to what? You know, I don't know. There's all these immeasurable things that are not considered metrics in the medicine program. So when you become indoctrinated as a medical doctor, you're taught to only look at those things that can be measurable or can be measured, the objectifiable things about an experience. But there's nothing from my wife and and, and my our pregnancies or our childbirths that I would be able to objectify. It was, it was hard. It was scary. I was anxious. I was all these things. So when people ask, they're probably like, wow, you're, you're probably my wife. You probably had the best birth attendant ever. And she'd say, actually, he really kind of sucked. <laughs> Surprise. You know, um, now I've learned from those mistakes. And if we were to have more children, I think I would be better, but I don't, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So naturally, how, how old I, were you? How old and where were you in your training when, when you had your first? So we were out. I was out of the training yeah. and I had been right. working for several years. Um, okay. The first one we had in the hospital, because my wife preferred that and it's all her decision making. I was able to advise and this and that about what we may want or not want or whatever. But the second time around was middle of COVID and we have stories about kids not being allowed to go home with parents if they had a positive swab and all this. And 
Stephanie, my wife just said, you know, let's just have a home birth. And at 35 weeks, we found a, a midwife. So I was 30, uh, man, 35. Like they're not that old. They're three and a half and they're three and a half and one and a half. So I was like 35 and 37, something like that when we had our kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so coming into the birth experience to answer your question more directly, I had to balance out what I had been conditioned to believe was a, a sort of objectifiable experience, you know, a data-driven reductive experience, a medical procedure against what I felt innately, even from going to home births and getting out of the medical system, which was that this is not a medical procedure, but then your doctor brain kicks in and then your heart kicks in and then your brain kicks in, then your heart kicks in. And it, it was this real conflict between the head and the heart. But fortunately, my wife is very you know, she stands on her own two feet. She knows what's true for her. And she has no problem saying, I'm good. I don't need that. No, thank you. And so she and I had to do this little dance where by the time we got to our second birth and we were at home, we were doing breath work. The baby came out of sleep on her chest. It was pretty, pretty, you know, uh, contrary to what I was taught birth was supposed to be like, but it was, it was easily the most beautiful birth experience I've ever been, you know, a part of. And, uh, but it didn't come without that, that fear of like, but what if, but what if, but what if, so any dad who's out there, if you think just having the information is going to get you through that, it's not, I have all the information and I'm still like, what if, what if, what if, but it was my journey to balance that. What if with the reality that everything is just fine, just have to kind of trust that, that she's got it. There was no problem there for me to fix. That's super powerful, man. You literally em- embodied the tensions between, yeah. between yeah. those those two poles. Yeah. That's fucking legit. That's really mm. legit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so just delving just a little bit deeper again, w- with the sense that uh, you know a rite of passage occurs with 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 becoming a dad or with with the birth of my kids. If you're willing, um, give us a snapshot of. You know, I'm, I'm inquiring about your heart. I'm inquiring about your soul. I'm inquiring about you as a man, less as a doctor right now, which is who are you before and who did you become? How, like, what did the process of becoming a dad really uh, mean for you and, and who you actually are? Yeah, as a man, uh, just because I'm educated, just because I'm accomplished, just because of any of those qualifiers that, you know, might go on like LinkedIn or something. Do people still use LinkedIn? I, I guess they probably they do. do. Yeah. Um, I don't, I guess I, I, obviously I don't have a LinkedIn page. Um, you know, all those things that we would put on a CV, a resume or somewhere on, you know, like a, a promotional website to try to qualify ourselves. Um, none of that really served me in fatherhood. Uh, I had already experienced a number of psychedelic, you know, very transformative experiences for myself. You don't need psychedelics, but if you're stuck in a, in a paradigm, they certainly, you know, serve you to boot you out, like get you to see behind the veil a little bit. Um, I did have quite a bit of sort of time for most of my twenties where I was only focusing on myself. I had identified with having rock hard abs and shoulders and, maybe being moderately good looking and being able to do cool things with my hair and get great attention for it. You look great with a mohawk, having a nose ring, like all these things that were just about me, me, me. And that, you know, serves us when we're trying to like dial in our health, you know, take some responsibility. I'm sure we'll get into that, but take some responsibility for your health. But the problem is, is that now there's a little baby here 
and that identity that you've become so uh, attached to actually starts to dissolve if you're doing fatherhood right. So what I always tell people is death is on the line with any true initiation. And when you go through childbirth, your wife is dying, your baby is being reborn, and you are dying, and you you and your partner are also being reborn. You are coming out of that on the other side very, very new. And if you are desperate to grasp onto that life of being, I was an Ironman distance triathlete, if you're determined to stay that person or a CrossFit trainer, I was also doing that, or a rock climber, I also did that, and still be their father. The problem is that you, a part of your identity has to go to your child. You have to be willing to give a piece of yourself to them in order for you to have genuine connection because your daughter doesn't care how much money you make, doesn't care matter how straight your teeth are, how you know flat your stomach is. All that they want to do is be loved and you can't love them as much as you love yourself. <laughs> it, it becomes really, really hard. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't love yourself. If you can't love yourself, you can't love your child either. But if you're so narcissistically in love with yourself that you're unwilling to give a part of you to somebody else, and in an exchange, you get this change of identity, then you're going to fall flat. And so for me, I actually, it's six months into Penny, our first birth. I actually, my wife and girls were going to Pittsburgh, our hometown to visit. And I stayed back and I did a six gram mushroom journey. Um, and it completely ripped me open. It was like, it ended with me opening my eyes after a very, very uh, challenging journey, seeing the bassinet and just crumbling for four hours, just sobbing and realizing I haven't been willing to give a part of me to this little girl, which is going to be prohibitive for my, for my connection with her, you know, and I want to be her dad. I want to be this person, but I wasn't willing to let go of a little part of me and give it to her and say, here's your jewel. Like you will always have me with you. And I almost get choked up right now talking about it because it was such a, like, how could you be so naive? I, I know, you know, and you go through that period of whipping yourself and whatnot, but the reality is like, sometimes we need those hard lessons and, um, and realizing that a six month old at the time, she was only six months. She wasn't looking for me to solve her problem. I didn't have milk. I didn't have mom smell. Give it, give it to her mom. Give it, give the baby mom. I can't help. No, you can help. And the exercise is just letting her bear, let, letting her see that you're bearing bearing witness to her pain, to her the, the fright of being here earthside. She just wants you to know that through her darkest times, you're going to love her through that and hold her through that. That is what a man is supposed to do. Yeah. Inten intensely lovely way of putting that. And <clears throat> that, that like gets right into the heart of what I uh, really, really, really fucking care about here. I yeah. don't care about all of it, but you know, I think there's a lot of tenderness that I have toward uh, men like you and myself and other dads who, like, we are being initiated by life, right? I, like, you kind of, I forget how you phrased it exactly, but you said, you know, maybe we need those hard knocks or or whatever. But But I also feel like what I'm working to name and and hopefully participate in the creation of is a knowledge base and community and understanding where like how the fuck would we know that that's part of my big thing here man it's like we we'd stumble into this fatherhood thing like i mean i i was as intentional as i could have been right did tons of men's work did all of the healing did like i even i even moved in um 
with a family with babies, like in my late twenties, wow. because I thought I, like, I, I realized I'd never held a baby in my life. And I'm like, this is fucked. Like, I think I'm going to go be a dad. I, I, like, I need to do something. Right. And so I, I did my best to try, but then even like, I think that I did as much preparation as I could find. And then it happened. And then it, it's been years, like literally, like you talk about radical responsibility, literally, like maybe on a week by week basis, I recognize, fuck, like, I'm not, I'm not, there's way more responsibility to take. Like, there, there's just, just like the learning that, that I, I think it's probably sacred yeah. and important to not have it all mapped out. Like, I'm not saying that's what I'm trying to do, but I do think there's a huge gap. There's just a huge mm. gap in <clears throat> partially because of our fundamental lack of initiation and lack of mentorship, lack of community that, you know, I, it's important to me to do my best to create support for men in that fucking moment in all of the moments. Right. But, but it's like, how would we know how, how, you know, that identity thing is so huge, but um, Mm. yeah. So mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that story. That that is uh, that that jewel analogy of of giving a part of yourself, uh, sacrificing part of yourself. Um, I, I will uh, I will lovingly and with honor repeat that. That's that's really beautiful, man. You're you're happy. You're you're welcome to use it. And I I want to just to reemphasize something you said. I think a part of this this issue that we're having as as it's an identity crisis is, you know, let's say you're 26, you're doing jujitsu. I just saw a video today, actually, speaking of jujitsu, this guy was like a day in the life of a black belt. And he wakes up and he has his coffee and he has his eggs and bison liver and all this other stuff. And then he goes and does three hours of jujitsu. And then he goes and lifts weights. And then he goes and has a cup of coffee. And then he goes and does more jujitsu. And then he lifts more weights. And then he rolls out his calves on a roller. And then he goes to bed. And he's like, you know, a little, a little, you know, um, whatever dedication to the importance of caring for yourself goes a long way in jujitsu or something like that. And I, part of me was just like, I was thinking like, all right, let's throw two kids in the mix. Let's throw a, (laughs) a postpartum wife who's, you know, grappling with the realities of breastfeeding. Let's throw a dog shitting on the bed because they're, you know, not being, they're kind of being neglected. You throw all of that stuff into a real man's life. And now it's less about eight hours of exercise per day. And it's more about re-identifying with what does this new version of me look like? And I think it's that resistance to the change that leads so many men to these tremendous issues with addiction and alcohol and, and depression and anxiety because they nobody gave them permission to just be like, bro, you can be somebody else. You actually can be a totally better version of yourself if you just owned up to the fact that you're now a dad. You're no longer that that lost boy, as I call them, who's 27 and just trying to figure out how his penis works. Like you, you can be a real man. Now this is, there's an incredible opportunity here. You haven't lost anything. You've gained tremendously from this experience, but that tension is so hard for guys. You know, it, it really is. So like you, that's a big part of my advocacy is like, you don't have to mourn the loss of that. Like let the 26 year olds be 26 year olds. You're now a dad. Yeah. You're you are more powerful than any of them combined. Like you've got something special here to give to the world. Be the best dad you can be. And not only are women going to be attracted to you and your kids going to love you, but hey, you might actually start feeling good about, you know, about the value you bring into your household. 
we're not, we don't value your abs. We don't value your marathon time. We don't value your bench press record. We value how you show up. And I'm speaking from the lens of kids. We value our dads for how they show up and how present they can be with us. Not their time they spend, but the presence they give us. That is a really, really great way to show up in the world. The first cohort I ever did of, of fatherhood ready. Right. And so that's a program, uh, pre-dad training, right? And one of the very first, uh, one the first session or the second session, like part of what I was doing or attempting to do was just, um, yeah, g- give some heads up, right? Like, listen, listen, guys, yeah. things are going to change. Here's some of the ways things are going to change. And one of the guys in there who's a good friend of mine as well, um, it was such a sweet moment. He was like, okay, well, you know, I was talking through a, a day with an like in the postpartum period, just kind of like explaining, explaining what the day was. And, um, and I don't remember exactly how he asked it, but he's like, huh, okay, well, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get, um, he's like, you know, I meditate for, you know, an hour 45 every morning. Then I write for an hour. I'm just like, when do you think is going to be the best time for, for me to do that? <laughs> And I was just like, oh man, I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry to break this to you. And I'm really glad I'm breaking this to you. But, uh, you know, but I mean, that's just echoing what you said. The, the, the possibility here is that this, this, you know, scrubs the deck clean, becoming dead scrubs the deck clean. And we get to start from scratch and, and um, it's a fucking adventure. So let's, what I would love to lean into here is let's, let's do a little bit on, um, you know, on, I, I don't know, the, the, the conception birth, you know, conception, pregnancy, birth, postpartum period, you know, not that we have to be exhausting and, and, uh, but I'd be curious for you to share, I don't know, like a, like a, I was going to say survival guide, what a terrible phrase for it. Right. But, but like a, like a, a foundation, <laughs> foundational level, right. Like, like what does it, what does it mean to do a good job? What does it mean to start holding space? What does it mean to, to begin as, as a man, as a, uh, you know, to, to both be a part, be a good presence, be a support, uh, through, through that process. That's a big chunk of time. That's a big thing, but I think you can take us where you want. You know, I think it starts with just knowing yourself. I mean, I, I think that, uh, if, so if the question is really like, where do we start with trying to become a great father? Is that, is that really kind of what we're getting at? It is. Yeah. Through the, through the lens of how do you support a pregnancy? You know, yeah. what's, yeah. Starting at the beginning of it, I think time, time wise if possible. Okay. Well, we'll try to, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. You know, you and I were riffing on r- radical responsibility. A lot of us want freedom. We want freedom to choose how we give birth, where we give birth, how our partners are treated, how they're spoken to. If you're out there and you've heard like, you know, you're, they're listening to this podcast and they heard, wow, Dan and Nathan both had home births. That sounds really cool. I think I want to do that. The first step to doing that is is acknowledging that while nothing is guaranteed in life, you have a much greater likelihood of having the full complement of options if you and your partner are as healthy as possible. Hmm. So, you know, I can't, I won't get into that because that is, there's a tremendous amount that can be done, but just something as simple as like dialing in your nutrition, nutrition, maybe adding organ meats a couple of times per week could be 
and maybe getting some adequate exercise through the lens of like a birth fit professional or somebody who knows how to how to train a pregnancy uh, or a woman in pregnancy or postpartum some exercise and some some adequate dietary changes something like organ meats could be the two most impactful things that you ever do for yourselves while pregnant there are a list of other things that i won't get into but you can imagine sleep and hydration there's there's all this stuff i counsel around but getting your health is is in, in order is important for the baby, for the placenta, for mom, for dad. Because when you have this kid, you know as well as I, if you don't have it dialed in now, you're not going to have it dialed in then. So you might as well get your reserves up now, get as much sleep as you can. Really connect. The next step would be really connecting with one another. Do you both really know what one another stands for? Because you can't advocate for somebody without knowing their story and their values. So instead of spending all night watching Netflix, this would be a great time for you guys to be journaling together, writing a mission yeah. statement together, um, just being comfortable sitting in silence, maybe doing some eye gazing. And of course, dialing in your intimacy. Like you can have all the sex you want. You can have all the orgasms you want while, you know, while you're pregnant. I'm speaking to the women here. And for the male partners, there's something about having sex with your pregnant wife that just feels better. So embrace yeah. it. Like this is the last several months that you have before you have, you know, initiated parenting. You've, you've kind of gone through that portal. So I think that that's all really helpful. When you feel connected, when you feel healthy, like fully healthy, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, when you're dialed in, the birth itself is actually the easiest thing that, that you'll actually go through. What you should also focus on, the third thing, is once you've done those things, stop worrying so much about the moment the baby comes out. Start worrying about the next 18 years that you and your partner are going to have to figure out how you keep this baby alive and grow them into responsible humans, little, you know, uh, powerhouse women and, and emotionally vulnerable men. However it is that you feel men should show up or women should show up in the world, it's going to be your nurturing that provides at least a big part of that equation. And you guys as a couple have to be connected. So that was the best piece of information I was ever, or advice I was ever given. Stop yeah. focusing so much on the birth and, and, and focus as much, if not more, on what happens right after the birth. How are you guys going to remain connected? How are you guys going to choose love every single day when you wake up? Even though you're tired, even though you're pissed off, even though maybe you got in an argument yesterday, are you going to choose to love one another? Because that little kid doesn't, Matt doesn't care about all the other stuff we talked about. That little kid cares about mom and dad loving them. And if they see you guys fighting all the time, they may start asking questions. Our toddler does all the time. Like, dad, you need to be kind to mom. And I'm like, you're right, baby. I do. And none of us are perfect. That's the fourth thing. Remember that nothing is perfect here. We're all evolving and learning together. I think if you take yeah. that four-step approach, I think you're going to have plenty to work on. And you're probably going to be in the top 10% of the population as to how prepared you are for childbirth as well as this early stage of parenting so get healthy have a lot of sex do some eye gazing and connect and think about the think about the bigger picture um, Bingo. that's that's a <laughs> that's a far gap between that and i guess what i assume is the mainstream thing yeah. that, that people are i mean i'm guessing it's still uh accurate that people are are far more obsessively thinking about uh the baby's room and the and the you know the stuff and yeah. thing. Do, is yeah. that still true? Do you see that as true? Is is that yeah is that real? yeah yeah and I think sometimes that that type of stuff where you're preparing the the room and painting and doing all that, I think that that actually can be a way for you guys to connect and start to really communicate around 
you know, what, what do we need, you know, in our home? Like, how does our home feel? What do we really think is important for this little baby? It turns out you don't really need that much to keep a kid alive. Like there's all this stuff on Instagram and whatnot about the newest, greatest thing. If you had your kid in a cardboard box under the bed, maybe not under the bed, but next (laughs) to the bed with like, you know, the necessary accoutrements, like a diaper and a swaddle early in life, Mm -hmm. the baby does just fine in a cardboard box. Like you don't need a a $1,300 special bassinet. Instead, why not focus on um, maybe taking a, a trip, a couple trips while you're pregnant, going walk on walks in some of your favorite national parks, spend that money on other things. We get so wrapped up in the technology and these new advances and the newest, greatest organic hemp, bamboo, whatever from Cambodia. And we've realized that, or forget to realize that that money can be spent in so many other ways. And it might even be what you end up spending on your home birth, you know, your midwife, compensating them, finding a great doula. Like all of this stuff is actually very relevant. I think we get caught up in the whole decorating scene, but if that's a way for you guys to connect, hell yeah. Like yeah. figure out what you're going to paint the room and paint it together and have fun with it and then go and have sex afterwards. <laughs> I, I would love to hear more of your perspective on the the spectrum of uh, home birth, birth centers, hospital births. Uh, just, you know, when I, when I launched that fatherhood ready program, I, I had a first assumption that, all right, the guys who are going to come to this are probably uh, pinging higher in the home birth, but that actually didn't, that didn't play out to be true. And it yeah. ended up being people had a lot more questions and and didn't have a whole lot of education around that. So I'd love to, love to go in deeper into that for a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I've got this program called the born free method. And when people enroll, they're either preconception, they're actively pregnant, or they're maybe a birth worker, or they're, they've had a baby and they're thinking they might want to have another baby in the future. And one of the big topics we cover early on in the program, it's a 12 month mastermind weekly calls for 12 months with me and Sarah Rossra, a midwife friend of mine. And you get a, a, a sort of self-guided online course. There are several units there dedicated to deciding where do you feel is the best place to have your baby? Who do you want to have at your birth? This is really the birth birth planning conversation. But given the cultural milieu of how dangerous it is to have a baby at home or how uneducated or, or you know poorly caricaturized um, midwives are, or you know, what if something bad happens? Heaven forbid, you know, us as the problem solvers, us guys, we think about the worst case scenario and try to plan ahead for that. I gotta tell you guys, I, I, I hate to break it to you, part of being mortal is realizing and acknowledging that sometimes bad things happen in childbirth and there's almost nothing we can do in some scenarios. It's just, it's just part of being mortal. So our fear of mortality for ourselves. And again, I do a lot of end of life work and I still do it. A a part of fearing our own mortality is that it, we struggle to then ascertain risk in childbirth. Because nobody wants to have a disabled child or for their baby to die in childbirth. Fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. And unfortunately, in the hospital where we advertise safety, where I did all of my training for years and years and years, we're doing a lot of things to intervene that leads to catastrophes that then we have to swoop in and save the day. So on the surface, it looks like it's safer to have a hospital birth. On the, the deeper level, women who have uncomplicated natural childbirth in hospitals sometimes still feel very traumatized because they were having people's hands inside of them without really great consent. They were um, giving in to certain things like C-sections and whatnot because they were being counseled around risks and benefits while they're having 
duress. You know, they've been awake for two days for an unnecessary induction. They're in pain because they're contracting. And now you're going to ask them after no sleep and withholding food and water from them for all this time, if they just want to make it easy, let's just make this easy and go to the operating room. Later, they think back and they're like, what the fuck did I consent for? Consent to like, I, it didn't feel right to me. So what we've been willing to demonstrate over the past 150 years in our modern medical sort of industry is that we're willing to, for the sake of getting a healthy, living, breathing mom and baby, we're willing to sacrifice your health on the mental, emotional, and spiritual levels, which is leading to quite a bit of birth trauma in our communities. And and that's just that, you know, not every hospital birth is bad, not every home birth is good, but for the vast majority of women and men, having a home birth, probably 85% plus, having a home birth is probably going to change you in ways, in all the good ways that you're looking for and there's very, very little chance that you're actually going to need anything that is advertised in this sort of realm of safety, you know, that's yeah. purported by the, uh, that's advertised by the medical system. See, I had the luxury of not having any, <laughs> like any of those safety thoughts or anybody speaking that to me. Right. So, so when my wife, uh, early on shared that she wanted to to have birth at home. I mean, I was, I was a complete, I didn't have any second thoughts and I know, I don't think that's the norm or statistically that's probably sure. not the norm or whatever, but yeah, I'm glad mm-hmm. you said that, that last bit there, because I do, I guess that was my question is, you know, all three births for my kids were, were, were completely life-changing. And I, I think it would be wrong to assume that, um, you know, hospital birth or even a C-section is, is less, less life-changing, right? I don't think setting that, that up. True. But, uh, with that said, yeah, so the, with each, each of the three births, things got, uh, calmer, uh, more, uh, I don't know, more depth, more safety. I, I don't know. The, the third one, just a year and a half ago, when my little girl was born, um, yeah, it it was like a you know imagining a, a, a the most powerful spiritual ritualized ceremony you could ever mm-hmm. have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and mm-hmm. I am, you know, really really grateful to have that experience. My my somewhat practical question here is, how do you see or coach or support like? a father's uh, or or the, the the dad's role in in that choice of 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 where to birth right is it in anything specific that that you share in that role so do you mean uh in order to help fathers engage their partners in the conversation is that what you mean or how do we I, I guess there's a there's an under fears? yeah no i guess there's an underlying assumption that um you know m- mom chooses you know the, the right. mother gets gets to choose and, um, you know, in, in our, in my marriage, that was accurate and appropriate. Right. Mm. Uh, what if, what if a dad is, is just not, what if there's a difference of opinion, I guess? Yeah, that is a great question. So at the end of the day, you, you don't want to find yourself giving birth in a, uh, with people around or in a specific, I don't know, with specific circumstances that don't feel right to you. I mean, there's physiologic reasons for this. Oxytocin is going to be suppressed by the activities of the catecholamines, the epinephrine and adrenaline, you know, those, those types of hormones from your adrenal uh, medulla, they're actually going to interfere with the physiology of childbirth. But more importantly, 
for the reasons I just mentioned around women feeling traumatized in the healthcare system, despite having un, you know all natural unmedicated birth, there's there there is a deep sort of unrest that happens if you're ha- if you're you're saying yes to something that feels like a fuck no on the inside. We all know that. We all know that. And then we we then we sort of these seeds of doubt around why did I cave to that, you know, in the first place that starts to set in later in life. And maybe that ends up being this unresolved stress or otherwise known as trauma in the future. When we men are going to come into this conversation, let's say that there is a difference in opinion. The first thing, I mean, this is like nonviolent communication 101 is just, just to try to explore this person, you know, your partner's sort of perceptions, right? So if dad wants a hospital birth and mom wants a home birth, that's a pretty common scenario in my practice. I think the first question is, what are you, what are you afraid of? Like, what is the worst case scenario? The baby dies. Okay, let's actually talk about that. Because first off, sometimes babies die and it's not our, it's not because we failed as doctors or whatever. But fortunately, that's super rare. Like we're talking one in one in 10,000. Like you have a yeah. greater chance of wrecking your motorcycle tomorrow than that happening. Um, so we get into the risks and benefits, but I think more importantly, I think it's important to understand how did a person get to this place where they're so afraid of this thing happening? And I think we have to then take mother culture into account and and appreciate that everybody's story here is going to be different. And uh, thank goodness this man is is anxious about this. That means he really cares. And if we can turn that anxiety towards a constructive force as to, you know, an understanding of another person's, you know, position, this, this applies to our politics, to heaven forbid another pandemic thing breaks out trying to understand a person's story. Why do they feel so upset about this thing or so um, invested in this one option? I think you once you get a person talking about that, they start to kind of talk their way out of it sometimes when it comes to home birth. So the exercise I always have couples do when there's disagreement is close your eyes and really imagine where who's there. What are you smelling? What are you, what are you sensing? Who, what voices are you hearing? What is the environment like? And most, most of the time, they're going to describe what you probably experienced in your home birth. No. Do you want your baby to come earthside amidst beeping, sharp needles, uh, unnecessary procedures, like immediately cutting the cord, sh- being stripped away from mom, and then maybe later put on her chest to start rooting and breastfeeding? Or do you just want to like people there to be chill, you know, chilling out in reverence of what just happened? If you want the latter, have a home birth. If you want the former, if that sounds okay to you, then you have a hospital birth. It's not a right or wrong answer, but you and your partner definitely need to be seeing eye to eye on this. You need to be shoulder to shoulder with this. And and you have nine and a half months to unpack all of that. So I know I didn't really directly answer that question, but sometimes it requires multiple consultations with me before we can really start to unpack this. And what sometimes happens is karmically, something bad happened in that person's birth and we don't even know it. So I actually will ask them, ask your mom about your birth. And, and and how did your sister, how was she born? Like, let's talk about birth. And they might have this sort of, sort of unrealized, maybe subconscious fear of childbirth because there's a story that hasn't been told. So let's get your mom on the phone. Let's talk about your birth. And then the mom might say, you know, I wish I would have had you at home because the doctors did all these things and circumcised you. And I, I wish I wouldn't have done that or whatever. You know, there's so many other things that come with, with a, a male being born. But I think storytelling is really how we start to allay some of these fears and anxieties, because the only story that we're being told otherwise is that hospitals are safe, doctors are great, the nurses have your back, 
And yet women and their partners go into the hospitals and experience the exact opposite many times, not every time guys, but many times. So storytelling, like if, if you heard 99 great home birth stories to every one bad birth story, our experience with this, this dilemma, it wouldn't even be a thing. People would just say, well, that's unlikely. Just like if you drive your car, you're like, you're not worried about the car accident, but sometimes people have, you know, tragic car accidents. It's really a matter of just retelling the story and reframing and reconditioning ourselves to, to, um, consider the, the gross unlikelihood of the bad things happening Mm -hmm. versus the tremendous likelihood of great things happening when you're at home. So I just had two, two thoughts there throughout that. The first is that I, I keep having this thought that uh, when I started this podcast, one of my first thoughts was simply to make it birth stories from dads Yeah, to yeah. just be, just to be dads recording their birth stories. And I think oh, that would be, that. that would be. Uh, and now as we're saying it, I think maybe I'll, I'll bring that in and just do drop some in the flow of episodes. I'm excited yeah. about that. That that's, that's, that's meaningful. Um, the, the question I have or the next sort of step here is, you know, your, your awareness and willingness to bring spirituality into this, um, is, is clear. And I really appreciate that. And I'm, and I'm curious, uh, you know, with your, with your clientele and with, with your births, like how, how open do you get to go? How open do you, do you speak and express and and, and experience the, the spiritual part of this? Oh, well, Usually people find me and they're the right clients, but I do have to be a little cautious with that. I think people bring, you know, I think our religious upbringing oftentimes is informing almost everything that we do in life. Um, I fortunately grew up in a very open household around religion. We talked about a lot of things, but I didn't go to church. Um, I have kind of my own church sort of, so to speak, that I that I go to now, but that's not because I don't think, I, you know, I don't appreciate the values that are taught within Christianity, it's because I didn't really like being told what to do. And it seemed like being in a church organization was just sort of somebody telling me what I can and can't do. And I just never liked that. Um, oh, sorry. That's unprofessional. My phone just went off. Um, so, so when people hear me speak, I usually will kind of test the waters a little bit. And if they're willing to go there, I actually think it's a critical part of the conversation. Again, this is not a medical procedure. This is a spiritual transformation. So what was your spiritual upbringing? Like, like how do you connect? Are you connected with something bigger than you? Cause I also don't really appreciate people that say they're agnostic or atheist. Agnostic means you just, you know, the ant antinosis, like it's like, there can be no greater something that, that isn't seen or heard, you know, it's, it's just kind of, we become worm food someday, right? And atheistic being that there's really no greater power out there. There's no divinity. There's nothing like that. It's just this linear thing. You wake up, you fall asleep, and then you maybe repeat it again, or maybe not. Maybe again, you're just worm food. So I like to play in the gray there a little bit, but my direct experience with you know something like psychedelics or uh, deep meditation is really what has informed me as to the importance of this work in and of itself. So oftentimes, you know, people surprise me, you know, I I kind of feel like, you know, have you guys, what are your, what's your, tell me about your spirituality or something. I'll just use a vague term. And they might start hinting that they're not really churchgoers, but they're deeply spiritual. And then I'll, I'll say, have you ever done LSD? 
Have you ever done a trip? Have you been to Burning Man and you did that thing and you just went wild for a week? You know, my wife and I used to go perennially. And uh, then they'll say, yeah, we, we did that. And I'll ask them, what was that like for you? And that actually becomes the framework for the rest of the conversation around birth. Yep. If you can surrender to a large dose of mushrooms, not even a large dose, two to three grams of mushrooms, something like that. If you can surrender to that and really let go, that actually is the practice. That is the practice round for when you have to surrender to birth. Um, I do advocate for some people to, if you feel called to use mushrooms, a non-synthetic like mm -hmm. ayahuasca mushrooms mm -hmm. in your pregnancy with the right facilitation, there could be a great deal of good that comes from that. And for those people who are anxious or afraid of what's going to happen in birth, sometimes that is actually the missing piece. Like, let's go through this grieving process through the the ego dissolution that may come from one of these journeys. Again, with the right set and setting. Yep. And that may be a good practice round for you, especially if you haven't ever lost anybody and grieved the loss of a loved one. Those are practice rounds as well for our own mortality, especially in childbirth. So uh, sometimes I will, I will advocate for people to use these. I don't ever tell people you should or shouldn't do anything. Yeah. But if you feel called to use mushrooms, I've we did that in our pregnancy and it was mm -hmm. probably one of the most compelling arguments I could make for the spirits of babies coming into the womb Mm -hmm. um, that anybody could ever make. Cause I met the soul of our child inside the uterus and I was communicating with her at about five months of gestation, maybe six or seven months actually. And it was exactly the little person that I see every single day when I wake <laughs> up. Everly. I mean, it's, it's uncanny. It's this yeah. beautiful little ball of light. So, um, and then the last thing I'll say is that in the postpartum space, there is quite a bit of advocacy that I'm doing as uh, with regards to the use of psychedelics for helping to resolve birth trauma, um, mm -hmm. uh, things that have gone wrong, you know, mm -hmm. this, uh, how can we find some closure that can be a part of that ceremony as well. But I am not telling everybody out there, use drugs, do drugs, do whatever. I, we're just speaking yeah. colloquially, colloquially, colloquially here. But I do think that there is quite a bit of evidence anecdotally from um, really the world of sociology and anthropology in South America, in Mexico, in Central America, where these medicines are a part of the, the deal. Like yeah. if you're in the Amazon yeah. River Basin and you're not using ayahuasca during, before, during, and after your pregnancy, your kid is not going to be connected to the greater source of where we come from, which is Santo mm. Daime or, or you know, ayahuasca. So the jungle, right? So this is yeah. a part of who they are. And if it's a part of who you are, why would you not want that to be a part of your birth experience? There is no evidence that it's toxic, that it's going to cause your baby to die or anything. If you're using something like psilocybin mushrooms or whatever, but we also don't have evidence that it's completely safe. So that's yep. why it's back to in, in your intuition is authoritative knowledge. Yep. I remember, I don't remember which of the three, maybe all three of them, but you know, there is something that if you're open to it, if you can sense, if you, if you pay attention, like I remember just, you know, putting my head on the belly and yeah, I mean, I, I've, uh, I have a pretty sensitive system and I can sense, I've, you know, I have a high sensitivity, but fuck man. Like, you know, if, if, <laughs> if, if, if that's not enough to just, to just like blow your, your mind and your heart open, like, um, the other, the other thought that came up there too is, you know, one thing that parenthood has just brought deep to the center of our household is mortality and is death. And one, one of the, you know, 
um, you know, I wouldn't advertise for somebody to do this, but just recognizing, you know, being by my wife's side, specifically this last birth, like, like our, her death, our death, like just, just mortality in its essence, just, it just like moved in. It just like moved in and took up residence in our home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, again, I think that's not, uh, on on a large frame or you know mainstream level you know i don't people are necessarily knocking down the door to have that experience but god damn man like I've, i'm so curious i mean i think you know i have my version of this but knowing your your training and your life you know is 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 so much in those mortal doors right the the, the door in and the door out um it just um it just like I don't know, like reeks of, of meaning and, and like this practical human, beautiful thing that we're doing. So um, yeah, yeah, just curious about how your, your work with death inflects that with, with birth and and how that, how that plays out for you. Yeah. On a professional level, you know, I found palliative care to be a really beautiful, you know, you can call it a soft science, if you will. Um, Palliative care for those who don't know, uh, is really the step before end of life. You've got a chronic condition that is really starting to limit how you can live your life. Really, it's a life-limiting condition. It might be COPD, it might be heart failure, it might be cancer, it might be Alzheimer's, whatever. Palliative care gets involved in order to manage symptoms, to help with decision-making, to really get to know the whole family and to take care of your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. That's what palliative care does. Hospice care is when you have a diagnosis uh, of some condition that could reasonably shorten your lifespan within six months. Like you might die within six months. It's a, it's a, it's a clarification within insurance. That's all that hospice is. Got it. Now we're going to put it. all of our resources towards comfort focus, not trying to fix things, not trying to reverse the hands of time. We're in this now. Mm-hmm. You could be on hospice for many, many years, but anyways, the so so when I found this this practice of palliative care, my father, he was sick when I was in med school and he died after five years of treatment for multiple myeloma. And he didn't open up about any of his vulnerabilities. I mean, talk about men's work. Like this guy could have used a men's group, like in, you know, long ago before his death. And it wasn't until he met a really clever, you know, um, communication toolkit of a palliative care team at UPMC where he actually was opening up about what he was afraid of, what his spiritual Mm. beliefs are, what happens to me when I die. And all of that that you unpack in those conversations as a palliative care kind of a communication specialist help to then clarify how are we going to utilize healthcare resources to optimize whatever time you have left, whether it's days, weeks, months, or decades, doesn't really matter. If we did that for every single person that we meet in any medical specialty, we would have a completely different medical, uh, medical system. But instead, we do the things make the recommendations and then say you're non-compliant when you don't take the recommendations without even understanding what your values are, your beliefs are, your resources, how far they can go. Um, you know, if I say you need to work out seven days a week, but you can actually only work out two days per week, then I might see you as a shitty client, but that's not mm-hmm. fair. Because I never even asked you how much time can you reasonably dedicate to this? Yeah. So the reason that I went into palliative care in the first place was I was thinking, what if we could communicate like that to pregnant women and their partners? Fuck if yeah. I got to know everything about you before I ever started recommending this intervention or telling you what to do or whatever else. And it turned into this beautiful overlap. Mm. And birth and death are the two things that they feel very similar, like on a more esoteric level, they feel very similar. There is a shift of energy. 
demonstrable shift of energy in your own person when you're in the room when those things happen. So I just found my niche. I do birth and death and I, I they, they overlap. And some of the ways I counsel around death and grief and mourning, I kind of got into yeah. that a little bit. That I actually apply that same sort of structured conversation in helping a couple get ready for birth. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful overlap. It really makes sense. That uh, makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and it also, um, you know, in, in that case, I mean, again, through the lens of, you know, being a dad, being a man, just sort of being a full, a full-fledged human being here, I think of, um, you know, uh, constantly thinking about my responsibilities with my children, my home and my, my partner and, and my just like responsibility is the word of the day. Right. And then I think, um, what I recognize for myself is I'm shifting into a time period where as my parents age, right. That's a, that's another, um, responsibility or role for me to play to, to, to support that aging process and eventually, you know, death and, and the, and all of that. And, you know, we started, um, even before we started recording today, just talking about radical responsibility. I want to, I want to keep that as like, maybe our finale here. I want to, I want to hear your perspective on that and, you know, wherever you want to start, but I think, you know, it, it intuitively feels like to me, like the thing, right. That's kind of like the thing as, as a father in, in this, in this, you know, the context of our conversation, but tell us, tell, tell me more about what it is about that, that hits. So, yeah, you know, I kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but the radical responsibility piece is owning the outcomes of our decisions as much as it is being able to be, you know, comfortably counseled by whoever around the risks, benefits, alternatives. I I think vaccines are really fresh on people's minds, so we can use that as an example. Anybody who says anything is 100% certain in any in any regard they're not they're not somebody to be trusted whether you're pro or con with any issue especially vaccines you're probably wrong if you if you say anything with 100% certainty that is actually the, the primary principle of medical inquiry or or scientific inquiry i should say so when we say just you know the science is settled or whatever else we're actually missing the big point there so i do think it's great that people are asking questions and demanding information but we also have to realize that there is a limitation to what that information can promise us. Meaning, even if the CDC says that this thing is good, or your health coach says that it's good to supplement in this way, or some influencer tells you to take this thing, you might get that result, but you also might not. You might get some completely different catastrophic outcome. Who knows? Unfor- you know, fortunately, that's unlikely. But you know, if we look at pregnancy complications, and so many women now are complaining about C-section rates and induction rates, well, if those same people haven't dialed in their own health to the best of their resources and time avails, then you haven't done everything in your power to prevent this horrible thing from happening. Now, that yeah. doesn't mean that everybody's going to be able to avoid some of these things. Some of this is uncontrollable. It's a part of being mortal. But if you want true freedom, if you want to actually stand up and say, fuck vaccines or, you know, fuck anti-vaxxers on either side of the conversation, you have to start to be aware that there's only so much that the powers that be and medical research and whatnot can give us. Ultimately, it's your decision. Your intuition is authoritative knowledge because in pregnancy, it doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong, who you're listening to, what podcast you're listening to, ultimately, whatever you decide, you're going to have to live with the decision later. If that child ends up injured because of something you did, you're going to have to own that. If your child um, 
uh, if something, you know, like a C-section happens and you were determined to have a vaginal birth, but you had a C-section because you developed gestational diabetes, it's not just the fact that we have a high C-section rate. Part of the reason we have these high rates, which I do believe are way too high, one third of babies coming by the abdomen, one third of babies, you know, being birthed after induction of labor, maybe prematurely. I, I, I know that those numbers are too high, but we in the United States can, can toot our horn all day long for having some of the highest pregnancy complication rates, despite us being the most wildly rich nation that maybe has yeah. ever been known. Yeah. So if you have resources, if you have time dialing in your lifestyle, getting the right uh, care team together, spending time connecting, all of those things that we talked about, that is a big part of my counseling. Because if you want the most autonomy in your childbirth experience, if you want faster postpartum recovery, if you want the best life available to you, there has to be some part of that that you're taking responsibility for. And if you're not doing it, then you can't just blame the CDC and Big Pharma and all these big four-letter organizations that we love to shit on. They are a problem, no doubt. But we are also a problem if we're going to allow corporations to continue to poison our food systems, our water, our air to you know sell us pharmaceutical drugs on on the airwaves like if we're going to keep you know putting up with those things um and we're not going to take responsibility for the things that we have control over then we're going to continue on this path and we're not going to get any better so it's a two-edged sword it gives it gives yep. me my greatest fans and my greatest enemies but it's there are certain things that are in people's power and if we're not controlling for those then then we really can't be bitching and moaning so much about the system <laughs> Yeah. Hear that everybody? Um have sex with your pregnant wife, eat organ meat and step up and take responsibility for your decisions. There we go. Um I'm big fan, man. I appreciate you. I I enjoyed this. I um I'm I'm glad you're out there doing what you're doing. And um tell us uh yeah, so if there's dads in listening or I guess non-dads too, but uh t- tell us where we should find you, tell us what we should look for, what are you up to? Give us the give us the standard sort of outro here. Yeah, absolutely. Nathan Riley OBGYN is my Instagram handle. Um I only use that. I only start with that because that has all the links to everything else that I'm involved in including the Born Free method, which is our 12-month uh, uh, weekly calls mastermind where you'll also get a very comprehensive online um, educational program with over 250 citations covering all the lifestyle stuff, all of the interventions, radical responsibility, birth planning, choosing a doula, choosing a midwife, the whole package, a whole unit for dads, which I'm sure you'll love, and a whole unit even on psychedelics, cannabis, and other drug use in pregnancy and postpartum. So these, there is a range of topics that nobody seems to have the either willingness or ability to counsel on, but that's a big part of my practice. So we've included it in the Born Free Method bornfreemethod.com yeah. is there. And then my private practice is belovedholistics.com where people can find me to, to have as their private consultants to do all of the women's health things, including fertility, pregnancy mm-hmm. and postpartum support, as well as um, you know everything in between all the lifestyle medicine, functional medicine that I have training in as well. Beautiful. Check it out, everybody. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, brother. Nice to meet you. And and uh, we'll do this again sometime. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Really, really, truly a, a, an honor and a pleasure. Be well. Thank you for paying attention. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Please share this with any dads or moms or really anybody you think would be interested. Check out Nathan Riley online. Listen to his podcast, The Holistic OBGYN. And please come back next time.